Hey, one of the beautiful things about music and uh, certain songs in particular is that they just have this powerful way of triggering emotions and particularly certain songs transporting us back to key periods in our life. And so if I think of the soundtrack of my life, there are certain songs that just take me back. And so, for example, the first song I ever remember consciously liking was All That She Wants by Ace of Bass. You know that song? Oh, that she wants. I, don't, I won't sing them all, don't worry. Now, I looked at the lyrics for that song this week. Uh, turns out that that's probably not the greatest song for a six-year-old to listen to. But I loved it so much. I think mum and dad had the cassette. I took the cassette, put it in a Walkman back in those days and just was listening to it. I loved that song. Then it was the Macarena. Uh, I, d I discovered this week, actually, those lyrics aren't all that great either. Uh, but when you're 10 years old, you don't really care. And so all I remember was that my sister's school had an annual dance. And so I was one of the kids that knew all the dance moves. And so I got to show off to the kids. It was so good. A few years later, in my early high school, it was Craig David singing Seven Days. So good. Doesn't that take you back? Some of the other services will be like, what's he talking about? Uh, that was the first song that I ever learned all the lyrics to, or at least the commercial song. I reckon I could probably still recount all the lyrics for you. Uh, but it was also sort of my first introduction to R&B, and that was really the gateway into rap, which, for better or worse, mostly dominated my high school years. And then finally, I reached the pinnacle of my music appreciation and got into John Mayer. Yeah. <laughs> uh, John Mayer, the only artist I've ever seen live in concert more than once, and uh, somewhat embarrassing to admit, we actually had one of his songs as the recessional at our wedding. Which one? Your body is a wonderland. <laughs> now, I know you're making a whole lot of judgments about me right now. <laughs> like, wow, Tim's really young. Thank you. Yes, yes. Or maybe you're a Triple J hipster thinking, man, Tim is so commercial. Uh, that's probably true as well. Um, the point is, whatever you think of my list, each of us have a different list. Each of us have songs that I think dominate certain periods of our life. Here's the thing. I wonder if the same could be said of our hearts. That is, each of us, there is a sense in which each of us have a heart that is always singing a song. Uh, sometimes we might call it the belonging song. You know, I, I want a place to fit in. Uh, sometimes it, it's the relationship song. I want someone to spend my life with. Uh, sometimes it is the security song. I, I want to know that I'll be okay. And then sometimes it's the significant song. Right? I, I want my life to count. Now, there's certainly other songs as well, but the reality is that each of our hearts has a theme song, a, a song that dominates all the others and is on up the loudest. And while that song can change from time to time, that really is the song that shapes the direction of our life, informs the decisions that we make, and that's the song that we kind of live our life to the music of. The reason I bring this up is that our passage today in Psalm 96 starts with these words. It says, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. In other words, the call of this psalm is for the peoples of the earth to abandon whatever song it is that they are singing and instead take upon their lips a new one. Uh, we might call it a worship song. As we'll see, the, the call is worship the Lord for he is worthy to be praised. 
And it's a song that leads our hearts to rejoice at the thought of his coming. Uh, when we first started Grace City, uh, many of you will have heard a variation of this. I, I don't know if I've told this one in particular, but we're trying to think, what would we call this church? You know, there's a lot of different names. And to be honest, one of the front runners was New Song. I really like the idea, New Song Church. Thing is, the more we thought about it, the more we thought, oh, planting New Song down the road from Hill Song probably doesn't look all that good. So we went with Grace City instead. But the thing I was excited by, the, the thing that got me excited was the thought of offering out to the people of Sydney a new song to sing. See, part of the reason that God's people sing a song of worship is that actually they have found in God the one who meets and fulfills all those other songs of their heart. He's the one in whom they have found true belonging, true safety, true security, true relationship, and true satisfaction. Again, that was kind of the goal of us starting the church. We wanted to offer out a new song for people to sing. And in some ways, it is the desire of the psalmist. That's how he begins the song. Uh, sing a new song, all the earth. The thing is, having started that way, where he then goes is to tell us how that's going to come about. How is it that the peoples of the earth are going to have this new song to sing? And then also he tells us why it's so important for the peoples of the earth to sing this new song. And so that's really what I want to do today. We won't work through uh, the things sequentially because they're slightly out of order. But, but I want to start with asking how and then move on to why. How will the peoples of the earth sing a new song? And then second of all, how should, how should the peoples of the earth sing, <laughs> why should the peoples of the earth sing a new song? So we'll jump in. How will the peoples of the earth sing a new song? Uh, so we're going to jump in at verse 2 because we've kind of already read verse 1. As we do, something to be aware of, in verse 1, he's addressing all the peoples of the earth. In verse 2, the focus narrows a little, and he focuses particularly on the people of God. Now, uh, that will, if you trust in Christ, that would include you, though it is worth saying, in the original context, that is primarily to the Jews, because this psalm was probably written about, you know, around 100, uh, sorry, 1000 BC, so that's the time of the song. But let's read it together, verse 2. It says, sing to the Lord, praise his name, proclaim his salvation, day after day. Now, the psalmist begins just by making sure that the people of God are actually singing this important song, that, that, that the song that defines their life, that plays up the loudest, that dominates their thinking, is not the song of significance or belonging or security, but is the song of worship. Make that the song that you're singing. But then he tells them, where to sing it. Uh, sorry, he tells them uh, in particular to, to make this a song of salvation. Now, for the Jews, uh, that was primarily seen in their exodus from Egypt, so out of Pharaoh's land, through the Red Sea, into the Promised Land. But if you trust in Christ, then your salvation is seen primarily in your salvation from Satan's sin and death. And so just think that through. At the cross, Jesus has rescued you out of Satan's kingdom. Uh, he has paid the penalty for your sin. And what's more, he has conquered death, giving you an eternal hope. Now, if that's not something to give God thanks for, if that's not something to sing about, 
I don't know what is. But isn't it fascinating that the author still feels the need to remind us to sing that song, to praise God for us, almost as if he knows that even among the people of God, our hearts will be tempted to drift into singing other songs. Uh, Maybe it's the song of success, uh, the song of pleasure, the song of comfort. So maybe just before we press on, maybe ask yourself, what song plays loudest in your heart right now? If you trust in Christ and the scriptures say it ought to be the song of worship and there's so much good reason for that to be the dominating song of your life. But notice where he goes next. So he wants to make sure you sing in the song, but now look at what he says. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvellous deeds among all people. So, okay, you sing in the right song, good. Now I'm going to tell you where to sing it. Where? Sing it among the nations, among all peoples. In other words, this song is so good, you can't keep it to yourself. Don't just hold it in. Instead, sing it where others can hear it. Why? So that they can join their voice to yours and sing along with you. Suppose we ask, how exactly does that work? Just bring up a generic one, thanks. How exactly does that work? Uh, So perhaps uh, maybe you're slightly more introverted and you're kind of thinking, well... You know, how do we sing this new song for people to hear us? Can we just put speakers on the outside of the auditorium and then when we sing, we can just sort of blast the people of Grace of Green Square with our new song? Does, does that work? Well, the irony is, in, in some ways, it's not all that far off how the Jews did it in the first context. You see, if you go back to 1 Chronicles 16, what you read there is kind of a in some ways, the origins of this psalm, Psalm 96. And so if you go to 1 Chronicles 16, you read about how David brings the Ark of the Lord, which is kind of the symbolic presence of God, into Jerusalem. And then he erects the tabernacle, which is kind of a tent that would become later on the temple. And then he tells them, uh, he, he establishes, he sets up the first ever worship pastors. And so we read this in 1 Chronicles 16. Hopefully. It says, That day, David first appointed Asaph and his associates to give praise to the Lord in this manner, right? So he's appointed Asaph, that's a guy who would sing as well as some others, and you are to give praise. Here's how you're to do it, says David. Sing to the Lord all the earth, proclaim his salvation day after day, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. Sound familiar? If you keep reading and in 1 Chronicles 16, you just read the rest of Psalm 96. In other words, one of the primary ways that God's Old Testament people sought to fulfill this psalm was through singing it from the temple. Now, to be fair to them, there were some at least decent reasons for this. And so, first of all, uh, the temple was in Jerusalem and the temple was the place where God was understood to dwell. It was the place where you got your sins forgiven. And so uh, Jerusalem was also a multicultural city, and so all the nations would be in Jerusalem. And so, so the idea, that the thinking behind this, is that as you sing this out loud, as you blast it from the temple, the nations outside will hear. And so if we can get the next one, please, verse 7 and 8. There we go. Thank you. It says, Ascribe to the Lord 
all you families of nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Right, three times. The nations surrounding Jerusalem, actually the nations who are in Jerusalem, are told, give glory to the Lord. Give glory to the Lord. And how? What, what, what do you do? Bring an offering and enter his courts. In other words, come, come in and join us. Make your song the song of worship to our God. Problem was, it wasn't particularly effective, this way of calling on the nations. Again, you can imagine if we put like little speakers outside here, it's probably not going to be a particularly effective way to invite others to come. So how should we do it? How should we declare God's glory among the nations, his marvellous deeds among all peoples? Well, part of the answer to that question is actually first recognising that the only reason, if you're here and you trust in Christ, the only reason uh, that you do so for the bulk of us is that Jesus gave his disciples a different evangelistic strategy than the Old Testament Jews had. See, most of us won't be Jews. Some may be, but most of us won't be. And yet, how is it that we have this song of worship? Well, it's because in the Old Testament, they, the primary paradigm was come and see. And so the whole thing revolved around the temple in Jerusalem and the sacrificial system. But then Jesus comes along and he shifts the paradigm from come and see to go and tell. Because Jesus says, uh, I've replaced the temple and I have offered the perfect sacrifice. And so go out and spread this new song for people to sing. And you know what? The disciples did. They went to Asia, went to Africa, went to Europe. From there, the missionary movement continued on with people singing their song of salvation in Jesus. Again, the point is, is that the only reason any of us have a new song to sing is that others left home and comfort in order to sing it where we could hear it. And so my challenge to us, really the, the logic of the New Testament is to carry on that story. Uh, for some of us, it will involve literally leaving our home, our comfort, going to another nation to preach the gospel. For others, it might mean giving up a life in the secular workplace and entering the ministry. But frankly, for the bulk of us, it will look like prayerfully singing this song in the presence of our family, our friends and our work colleagues. So I, I want to encourage you, like Matt did, to, to Take advantage of those cards, those prayer cards. I set my alarm for 8.50 each morning. I'm praying for two parents that I've met from my daughter's school. I uh, only met them recently, but praying, God, would you just give me some opportunities? We've had one or two already, uh, but looking for more. And also, why not take advantage of the series as this comes up? You know, when you invite a friend, uh, some will be in a place where they're ready to say yes, and they'll come along, and maybe they'll have a great time. Others, when you invite them, they won't be ready. They'll say no. That's okay. Uh, part of what we're wanting this series to be is equipping us all to have these conversations, whether it's here at church or with our friends and family somewhere else. Either way, we've got a song to sing. And both the Old and the New Testament encourage us to, to sing it where others can hear so that they might join their voice to ours and sing a new song to the Lord. So there's the how. How is it that others are going to hear? Well, others are going to hear as we sing our song in their presence. But now let's think about why. 
Now, Simon Sinek has a book. We've done the opposite. He says, start with why. We're going to finish with why. Why should we declare God's glory among the nations in the hope that others turn to him and sing a new song of worship? Well, we get two reasons. The first uh, comes in verse 4 and 5. Have a look. It says, For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. The primary reason God's people are told to declare his glory among the nations is for the simple fact that he and he alone is the one true God. Now that might sound controversial today, but you can guarantee it was even more controversial back then. See, back then there was no atheist. Instead, everyone around the people of God, the Israelites, they all had their own gods. And so the Babylonians had Marduk, the Philistines had Dagon, the Canaanites had Baal. And yet the psalmist says, you know, all those so-called gods, they're just idols. They're not real gods. They don't exist. And therefore, not only are these nations worshipping false gods, they're also failing to offer worship to the one true God, the creator of heaven and earth, which is arguably even worse. Uh, reflecting on this, John Dixon, um, in his book, Promoting the Gospel, uh, writes this. He says, these verses give us the fundamental equation of mission. And so he writes this. If, if there is one Lord to whom all people belong and owe their allegiance, the people of that Lord must promote this reality everywhere. Monotheism and mission are intimately related. The existence of just one God makes our mission to the many essential. Now, if you're here today and you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian, maybe you hear those words and you cringe a little. Maybe you hear those words and in some ways they sort of raise some red flags for you. After all, uh, certainly in probably the last couple of centuries, there, there has been a, a somewhat of a mood towards mission and the God of the, the Bible, thinking you know, the God of the Bible is imperialistic and he's trying to destroy culture by bringing in biblical religion to places where they were actually just happily going, where uh, worshipping their own gods and, and the God of the Bible comes in. And so in that context, missionaries are seen a little bit like uninvited intruders coming and imposing their religion on others. I actually saw this uh, firsthand several years ago in Vanuatu. Uh, my family uh, visited a remote island as part of a cruise. And in many ways, this island was still fairly traditional, uh, still fairly basic. Uh, but Christians had visited this island, sorry, missionaries had visited this island. Uh, the people had become Christians. There was this little very simple but basic church built on the island. And as we were walking back to the cruise ship, I, I overheard this couple ahead of me saying just how sad it was that the missionaries had come in and destroyed the beautiful culture of these people. And part of me was shocked that they were saying that, particularly in a place like Vanuatu. So I don't know if you're aware, but before the Christians arrived in Vanuatu, they were cannibals. The first missionaries to Vanuatu were killed and then eaten. You can look it up, not making it up. And so in some ways, there was an irony to the fact that these people were bemoaning the influence of Christianity when almost certainly the only reason they were getting off the island alive was because of the influence of Christianity. Point here is that 
the God of the Bible is not a God who's coming and imposing this foreign idea on people who are thoroughly content and happy on their own. There is a different mindset in the way that the Bible thinks about it. I want to show it to you. Uh, We won't pull it up again, but just look at verse 5. Look again at verse 5. For all the gods of the nations are idols. That word idols in verse 5 is the Hebrew word elalim. It's a play on words because it rhymes with the Hebrew word for God, which is Elohim. And so literally verse 5 reads, The Elohim gods of the nations are Elilim, idols. And so it kind of rhymes. The Elohim are Elilim. It's a little like saying the gods of the nations are folks because it rhymes. But there's more to it than simply rhyming. Because that word Elilim is actually not, not strictly speaking idols. It's actually more like worthless or nothingness and therefore the biblical understanding of mission is not about a bigoted god coming and controlling but rather imagine a child is stolen from their parents at birth and then they're raised by imposters imagine that the real parents discover years later that these kidnappers these imposters are raising their kids what parent wouldn't search heaven and earth in order to get their kid back from imposters, right? That's the God of the Bible. He's not imperialistic about other cultures. He's passionate and driven to get his kids back, to gather them back from imposters, from worthless idols, from Elohim. Now, in Sydney, the idols people worship won't always look anywhere as sophisticated as, or perhaps they'll look more sophisticated, depending on your view, uh, you know, the, the stone thing. Some will, but oftentimes that's not the idols that our people are worshipping. Instead, uh, every, but remember, every, everyone's heart sings a song. Uh, it's just, and it, it's that song that dominates the focus and the attention of our desires and our heart. And so it turns out that the song of our heart, you know, the song of success, of comfort, of pleasure, turns out to be the idol of success, of comfort and pleasure, because that's what we're pouring everything into. The problem is, these things are Elohim. They're imposters. They've captured the hearts, the minds, the souls of the people and the families and the the friends that we love. But God says, "It, it shouldn't be this way. I want my people to sing a new song. I want my people to sing my song in the presence of those who don't yet know it so that they can join their voice to the chorus and sing it with me. I want my kids back to be children once more. So that's the first reason that this psalm encourages us to sing our song among the nations. is so that others might hear it and turn and join their voice to ours and be saved from being captive to worthless idols. But there is a second reason. There is a second reason... And we read it in verse 10 to 13. Let's read it together. It says, Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. So let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let the trees of the forest sing for joy. Let all creation rejoice because the, before the Lord, for he comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. As unpopular as the idea of judgment may be, 
it is another significant reason to call on people to sing a new song in worship. Uh, and you see that not once, not twice, but actually three times in four verses. Now, if the thought of a God judging people is a massive turnoff for you, I totally get it. Uh, particularly when this idea is kind of being parroted by, you know, fire and brimstone preachers who just almost seem to delight in this message without any form of compassion, it's repulsive. I suppose just with that in mind, I do think there's two important things maybe just to say on the idea of a God who judges. The first is that if you don't like the idea, you may just want to double-check your motives. I say that because cognitive dissonance theory suggests that people will tend to modify or create new beliefs to uh, suit their tastes. And so this is actually normally thrown at religious people. So it's normally thrown at someone like me and say, oh, you know, uh, you've, you just believe in a God because you've got daddy issues and really you, you kind of want someone in the sky to sort of make sure that uh, everything is okay. And so really your religion is a crutch and you've built this idea of a God in the sky who looks after you to make you feel better. That's the way it's usually used, but you could actually flip it around the same way, couldn't you? And so, for example, the atheist Stephen Hawking used to say, religion is a fairy story for those afraid of the dark. But the Christian apologist John Lennox used to say, yeah, but couldn't atheism just be a fairy story for those afraid of the light? In other words, light and darkness used in moral terms there. Point being, surely the idea of a God who is just and might one day hold us all to account is a powerful motivation if we don't really think we're doing okay to repress that belief and replace it with something else. And so either we believe now in a God who doesn't really care how we live or maybe no God at all. Now, of course, none of that proves the existence of the biblical God. I get that. But I suppose I, I do just put it to you maybe as a, to, to warn us all about too quickly writing off the idea of a God who judges because we don't like it. But secondly, and actually probably the more important thing, at least in regards to this passage, is that judgment in the Bible, and you certainly see it here, is supposed to be a good thing. I wonder if you noticed that as we read it through. If you've got it open in front of you, feel free to look at it again. But Things like, let the I'll say it again for you, Siri. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea resound. Let the fields be jubilant. Let the trees of the forest sing for joy. Like Everyone is celebrating. Everyone is rejoicing. But hang on, I thought we were talking about the judgment of God. According to the psalmist, the, the, the coming judgment is a cause for celebration. Why? On the Bible... God's judgment isn't supposed to conjure up for us images of this like really severe school principal coming to bust all the naughty kids. Instead, it's supposed to conjure up images of the Justice Commissioner coming to root out evil and um, corruption from the land. So I'm reading a number of books in preparation for Weekend Away at the moment. If you haven't heard about it, book your tickets. Um, and I kind of ummed and out about sharing this quote with you because uh, in some way it might raise some more questions than it answers. Hopefully not. If you have questions, come to Weekend Away. Uh, but listen to what Cornelius Venema says just, just about this idea of God rooting out corruption from the land. He says, Sin has disrupted the harmony and peace between the triune God and his creatures. 
a disruption that encompasses heaven and earth. Even in heaven itself, the enemies of God have rebelled against his gracious rule. Indeed, the rebellion of the creature against the creator began in heaven and spilled over into earth. Consequently, when God's work of redemption, so here's where he's fixing things up, when God's work of redemption reaches its consummation, not only will every rebellious creature be cast out of heaven, but the earth itself will be cleansed of every vestige of sin. Heaven and earth, rather than being estranged from each other, will once more be reunited in a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The reason we're told to rejoice in the coming judgment of God is that it's going to bring about the redemption of all things. And so that's why in the book of Revelation, you just get this beautiful picture. A place of no more sickness, no more suffering, no more death, no more disease. Because the old order of things has passed away. And so again, part of the why behind singing this song among the nations is that God has come in to judge. And yes, that, that does present a message of warning to some. But also for those who trust in Christ, it is this beautiful message of hope. And of course, for celebration, the message is evil will not always triumph. Instead, God will one day return and set all things right. And so there is hope. Good will triumph. God will be glorified. And all things will be made new. Let me close. What song is your heart singing right now? Whether you trust in Christ or not, the reality is all of us have hearts that will be prone to sing a certain kind of song, a song of the world, belonging, relationships, significance, maybe for you it's success, pleasure and comfort. Truth is, none of those are necessarily bad in and of themselves, but when they dominate our hearts, they take us captive. The message of the Bible is that God sent his son to give us a new song, to give us a song of joy and salvation to give us a song of freedom and worship. So the question is, will you sing it? Will you sing that song? Will you let that song dominate your life and so sing it so that others can hear and join in the chorus? Because there is a progression, right? God sends the Son, the Son sends his apostles and it carries on. We're supposed to carry on that work of singing the song. And so Grace City... I prefer our name to New Song. But may the heart behind that name always be true of us. May we be a people who both sings that song ourselves and then holds out a new song for our family, our friends, our loved ones to sing, a song of worship to our good and loving God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are a good, loving God who sent your Son to rescue your children from idols, from imposters, from those who do not deserve our worship, instead to bring us back into your family so that we might worship you. And we pray that as your children, we might sing that song loud and clear, sing a song of salvation in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>